The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Currently on Top Docs, we're featuring interviews with the directors of almost all of the films recently named to the Oscar shortlist category of Best Documentary Feature, including Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, now streaming on Netflix, Sarah Dosa of Fire of Love, Laura Poitras of All the Beauty in the Bloodshed, Seanic Sen of All That Breathes, and many more. Be sure to stay tuned to Top Docs for more Oscar-related conversations, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to IndieWire editor-at-large, Ann Thompson, who joins me to break down the best feature documentary Oscar shortlist, which was just released on December 21st. The 15 documentaries named to the shortlist were chosen by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences documentary branch, which voted from among 144 feature-length documentaries that are eligible for this year's Oscars. This is the second year in a row that we've had Ann on Top Docs to discuss the shortlist. Last year's Oscar went to Questlove for his sublime Summer of Soul, which basically was the front-runner from beginning to end, with some healthy competition from Flea. But this year is shaping up to be an especially competitive race and therefore much harder to predict. I had lots to talk about with Anne, from the possibility of having a two-time winner this year to the continuing influence of the Sundance Film Festival in being the place for Oscar contenders to premiere. And of course, you'll definitely want to stay tuned to the end. Anne's pick to win it all may surprise you. By the way, we've interviewed 12 of the 15 Oscar shortlisted directors, and you'll want to check out those interviews by clicking on the links in our show notes. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Ann Thompson. Ann Thompson, welcome back to Top Docs. Happy to be here. Thank you so much, Ann. We had this conversation a year ago. It was a lot of fun. You do a wonderful job of tracking the Oscar race, and everybody wants to hear what's on your mind. The shortlist was just announced two days ago, so people are wrapping their heads around what this means. Before we jump in and talk about the shortlist, I think a quick reminder for folks about how this is voted on. So I'm just going to run through this very quickly. The Oscar shortlist in documentary consists of 15 films in the category of Best Documentary Feature that are voted on by the 600-plus members of the Academy's documentary branch. The branch will next vote to narrow that list of 15 down to the final five nominees, which will be announced January 24th this year. And once that happens, all the members of the Academy who are eligible to vote can vote on the winner in the Best Documentary Feature category, which will be announced on March 12th. So the list has expanded over the past few years as the Academy has invited more younger, more international members. So it's not the small coterie of people who had very opinionated ideas about what a good documentary was. It's different. And they really lean international, too. So as the branch has expanded, the scope of the films we're likely to see on this list has changed. 
Definitely. So before we talk about the 15, I'd love to hear about any surprise omissions. Were there any glaring omissions, films that you thought were going to be on the list and did not make it? This fellow doc, Maven, and I were going over what would be the final five, jumping the gun. And we thought Goodnight Oppie would be a contender. And it's clear that this group did not want <laughs> Goodnight Oppie, which is this wonderful heart tugger NASA documentary about a Mars rover, which uses a lot of ILM effects. They didn't want this crowd pleaser to make it to the nomination level, because if it had, it might have won so that it isn't on the short list. So that was a very significant omission. It really was. We had the privilege of talking to the director, Ryan White, on the podcast and the films with Amazon. Oh, they pushed it. It was winning awards. The Critics' Choice Awards loved it. And then it wasn't on the list. But the Critics' Choices were outliers in a way. And I would suggest to you that the particular, I'm a member of that documentary group there. And I would suggest to you that they actually don't represent anything close to what the rest of the groups did, the IDA. They're all different this year. The IDA had its own issues where it was definitely going very woke and didn't nominate Descendant, presumably because it had a white director covering the subject of Africatown in, in Mobile, Alabama. So I, I think that there were all sorts of interesting issues with the different groups. You know, Cinema Eye Honors, and IDA, they didn't necessarily reflect what the Academy was doing. Would you agree with that, Ken? I would. I would say the winner of the International Documentary Association, the IDA Awards, All That Breathes, which we'll talk about in a minute, maybe that decision wasn't such an outlier, but the overall nominees, and I don't know how many nominees the IDA has, many, I would agree with you completely about that longer list. Were there any other omissions that stood out? That was really the biggest one. How about you? It was for me. I was kind of expecting Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues, directed by Sasha Jenkins. I haven't seen the film, but it's Apple that's behind it, Imagine Documentaries, so some heavy hitters. Yeah, there were a number of biographical and musical docs based on entertainers like Sidney Poitier that didn't make it. And I think that's considered a soft category, which is why it's so interesting that the Leonard Cohen documentary, Hallelujah, really focusing on that song, made it and made it partly, I think, because it was a box office hit. Box office had some impact this year with Fire of Love and obviously Moon HD Daydreams doing so well at the box office. It's true. Okay, so let's talk about our favorites. I'm going to lead off by giving short blurbs about all the films that Mike, my co-host, Mike Merrill and I, Put on our favorites list, obviously, your list may vary. And just to clarify, when we say favorites here, we mean the favorites to win, not our personal favorites. So we have All That Breathes, which we mentioned a minute ago, which is Sean Xen's lyrical ode to a pair of brothers who endeavor to save birds that are literally falling from the skies in New Delhi as a result of environmental degradation and other reasons. We also have All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is Oscar winner Laura Poitras' collaboration with the famed photographer Nan Golden. Descendant, Margaret Brown's multi-layered film, which juxtaposes the search for the Clotilda, the last American slave ship, with the stories of its descendants. Fire of Love, Sarah Dosa joined us to talk about the married volcanologists Katya and Morris Kraft and their path-breaking work. 
And we have Navalny, Daniel Rohr's riveting thriller slash portrait of the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. We were fortunate enough to speak with all of those directors on Top Docs. So check out the show notes for links to those conversations. So Anne, what are your favorites this year? Well, you and I and Mike are all on the same page. I have All That Breathes, which is just winning across the board from all the different groups. Lots of kudos. And I wrote about this, too, because it's just an extraordinary movie. It's not just about the environmental story and the brothers, but it also has this very innovative cinematography that deserves mention. You know, shots... (laughs) that start with garbage and rats down on the ground and then go all the way up to the sky. I mean, they just did some remarkable things working with a great cinematographer, Viktor Kozakovsky. And then All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is, I think, deserving of winning the Oscar. It, to me, is the most extraordinary because Laura Poitras actually takes the subject. It could have just been about this extraordinary agitprop political movement to get rid of the names of the Sacklers at the museums, which was extraordinarily successful. I didn't know what they had done. That that could have been just it. But they dug and they dug into the life of Nan Golden, not just her art, but what drove her art and what drove her approach to life. And I think that is just an extraordinary achievement. A complicated thing to pull off because it's this sort of dual portrait of Nan and her work and her career and kind of a real-time almost tracking of the activist group that she formed to protest the Sacklers and the museums. It really worked. And she wove all of these different things in and out and kept surprising along the way. Fire of Love, again, Sarah Dosa's remarkable thing with the extraordinary narration from Miranda July, which I think really contributes a great deal, as well as this extraordinary archive footage from the volcanologists themselves and the tragic story (laughs) that unfolds. They did a great job with that. It could have gone in so many different ways, and I think it's extraordinarily original and successful. And then Navalny agreed 100%. Again, Access to an unfolding story in real time with a very charismatic subject, unfolding news breaking in front of the camera in a way that you rarely see, you know, people divulging information and the people in the room reacting and going nuts, you know, it's just a great documentary. And my fifth one is The Territory from Brazil documenting the extraordinary degradation there in the rainforest and the indigenous people that it affects. And I will say that I just did an interview with Basil Siokos, senior programmer of nonfiction at Sundance, to talk about the Sundance lineup. But I had to ask him about the short list, and his list, I believe, matches yours perfectly. Those are the ones that have already received a lot of love across all the different awards groups. Whereas I think the others are just more spotty, but equally deserving. This isn't just my favorites. It's really the ones that I think are actually going to do well with the Oscar voters. So we'll get to the next batch, the so-called runners-up in a moment. But I want to return to something you said last year, which I thought was really interesting. You mentioned this sort of formula almost for success in the Oscars, which was accessibility plus popularity plus extraordinary artistry can equal Oscar success. It's sort of like a a Las Vegas machine. If you get them all, you have a better shot. That's why I would say something like Hallelujah, which is a movie I love because I love Leonard Cohen. And I'm sure that's why it did so well. 
at the box office and with the voters. But at the end of the day, as much as I love it, it's not a movie that pushes the art of documentary filmmaking to some new level, which is why I have it in the Dark Horses category. So that's what I was thinking, is that all that breathes obviously performs very high on the artistry scale, but not as popular, certainly as a film like Moon Age Daydream by a long shot. And then you have other films on the list in the sort of front runner category that maybe were more popular, like Navalny, let's say, but more of a straightforward documentary. I would say they get extra points for some of that breaking news that occurs. They get extra points for access, you know? They really tracked him, the right person at the right time, in the right way. And the cinematography is very good. The interviews with him are very good. I'm not saying they broke the model of, was there a more effective way to make that documentary? I would argue no. They did what they should have done. And it's so timely. It's so politically timely. Yeah, and they were there in the room with Duvalny at crucial moments. And you could really feel the intensity of what was at stake. That's right. I wanted to ask about, you know, there's kind of this, you can't win twice unofficial rule that seems to apply. And obviously, yeah, Laura is up against that because she won for Citizen Four. Do you think that's going to be a a factor here? It's so interesting. I think the critics are the ones that are so excited about her. Both the L.A. film critics and the New York film critics gave her best documentary. But she isn't winning. Like Critics' Choice, you know, only gave her a couple of nominations. She didn't win anything there. She isn't winning the things you would expect her to win from the inside documentary world groups. And I keep trying to figure out why that is. And I suspect that the subject is in some ways off-putting to some people. Nan Golden. What do you think? What do you think the explanation for that would be? Why do you think Nan Golden as a topic would be off? Well, she's kind of a taboo busting artist. You know, she worked as a sex worker. There's so many revelations that are uncomfortable, I think, likely. And her own art is very transgressive in all sorts of ways. I think that's a really good point. And it's something that is covered in the film itself. It took Nan so long to break through because she was up against these obstacles. And maybe the obstacles continue today. So the other film you mentioned in your favorites is The Territory. And I should just mention what this film is about for those who don't know. It's Alex Pritz's thoughtful and beautiful film, which follows a young indigenous leader of the Uruwaiwai people fighting back against farmers, colonizers, and settlers who encroach on his people's protected area in the Amazon rainforest. So we had Alex on the podcast, and I think one of the things that I found so interesting was the extent to which he really did collaborate with the leadership of the Urawawa people. So you didn't get the sense that this was just you know a white filmmaker from the United States or from outside the area swooping in and making this film and then going away. He really developed a very close collaborative relationship with the indigenous community. Did that stand out for you? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I think also the environmental message is just so damning that I think people respond emotionally to this movie. That is its great asset. Yeah. And you mentioned the incredible visuals of All That Breathes. And one thing that struck me about the territory was the great sound design. Yes. It's beautiful too. It's beautifully shot. Okay. So let's go to our next category, Runners Up. And I'll just run through these, the ones that Mike and I had as our runners-up. These are all in alphabetical order for folks who wonder what order I'm reading these in. 
A House Made of Splinters, which is a heartbreaking slice of life from Danish filmmaker Simon Laring Wilmont, set inside a home in war-torn eastern Ukraine for children who've been removed from their homes while awaiting court custody decisions. We have The Janes, which is Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes's fascinating retelling of the story of this group of courageous Chicago women who performed clandestine abortions in Chicago and the community that formed around this group. Moon Age Daydream, which is Brett Morgan's epic impressionistic collage of David Bowie and his art. And this was the top grossing doc of the year by a long stretch. Internationally, yeah. Yeah, internationally, grossed over $12 million in ticket sales around the world. We have Retrograde, Matthew Heineman's observational documentary set in Afghanistan in the final months of the war. And the final film in our runners-up category is The Territory. What else did you have in that category that we didn't? So I put uh, Descendant in this category. And I guess the reason for that, I love Descendant. It's one of my favorite documentaries of the year. If we were just doing favorites, I would have put Descendant in the front. But I worry about Descendant because of some of the resistance to the idea that Margaret Brown a white filmmaker shouldn't be telling this story. I think she should be. I think she has every right to. It's her hometown. And she's been familiar with these players for a long time. She covered some of this territory in Order of Myths. The Clotilda was in Order of Myths, which is a great movie if you've never seen it, about the Mardi Gras in Mobile, Alabama. So I, that's the only reason I moved that into Runners Up. Retrograde is on there. I love Matt Heineman's movie. I think he and his team of cinematographers put themselves in extraordinary danger. They pushed themselves beyond what any normal person would consider the realm of reasonable safety to capture this extraordinary footage at the gates of Kabul, tracking this general, putting themselves in the way of sniper fire. He was on a helicopter that was shot at. I mean, unbelievable stuff that makes people worry about Matt Heineman's future survival rate. But he made an incredible documentary, is the point. And that's why I put that here. And the other thing that was amazing, I think, about Matt's film is what it required of him in terms of pivoting from his original focus. Correct. He was going to follow the Green Berets special forces in Afghanistan. And then, of course, we pulled out. And so he had to pivot and make a different film. And he made and he an figured extraordinary out that he film. He would follow that general. And the general gave him incredible access. And to have this footage of this powerful guy, the head of Afghanistan's forces in that area, shaving. <laughs> and yeah, it was, he's a very gifted filmmaker, Matt Heineman. But part of why he gets this stuff is that he pushes himself into what other people might consider crazy risk situations. That raises a question. It's sort of the flip side of the you can't win twice rule, which is, is the filmmaker due or overdue? So Cartel Land was nominated, but he hasn't won yet. And he hasn't been nominated since Cartel Land. So it's a question mark. A question mark. But the PGA <laughs> gave it to him, I noticed. And Matt Heineman's movie also landed a PGA slot. That is the Producers Guild of America. So the other movie I put here in the runners-up category is Moon Age Daydream, which for anyone who didn't see it in IMAX ought to see it with that format because that's really how... Brett Morgan shot the film. It's an immersive kind of oral experience as well. You want the sound to be ideal when you see it, as well as the images. So it is a kind of thing where you just sit back in your seat and take acid and have a great time. It's that kind of movie. 
it is a huge hit, but I'm surprised that the Doc Branch went for it because he's Why? not necessarily the most popular filmmaker there. And they didn't give it to, to his movie, Jane, that year. In a way, that year, Jane was considered something of a goodnight oppie, a popular movie. And there were some issues around it, but I'm glad that he got nominated again, shortlisted again. Yeah, I was happy to see him on this list. And it does make me wonder to what extent is the filmmaker's role in talking about their films on the circuit and the reputation they develop part of all this too? It is part of it. And people know who Matt Heineman is. People know who Laura Poitras is. They're famous inside this community. And they're expected to deliver at a certain level. And I think Brett Morgan does get some respect for delivering at a certain level. For sure. And it was quite accomplishment. I mean, he not only directed the film, but he edited the film and clearly was... He went nuts while he was doing it alone during the pandemic. And he had a heart attack, I believe. As Brett told us on Top Docs, he had a heart attack in 2017, just as he was about to start his deep dive into David Bowie's vast media archive. Maybe he and Matt Heineman are both getting stress points, <laughs> getting credit for being under duress. And what about the Janes? You have that as one of your runners up, too. I do. I loved the Janes. And remember, one of the points I always make is how many of these films debuted at Sundance and what an important launch pad that is every single year. Many of the final documentaries that are nominated started at Sundance. This year, eight of the 15 premiered at Sundance. Last year it was six, and I thought, okay, six is a high watermark. It's not going to be as many next year. Well, I was dead wrong. They really do curate very well there, and everybody submits to Sundance because it's the most important documentary film festival. Even though there are a lot of other ones that are important, Sundance is the one. So I would say The Janes is another case of something that's very timely, and they just did an extraordinary job of going back to 1968 Chicago and showing us what it was like for those women and what the stakes really were, which are now coming back around for the people who are in states where they don't have access to abortion. It's the most heartbreaking thing, and I um, get upset thinking about it, and I give them all due credit for doing this at this time. They didn't know that Roe v. Wade was going to be turned over right around the time that they were coming out. Which they talked about in the podcast when I interviewed them. And yet, since the decision was rendered, they have been working double time to get this film out there to talk about it everywhere and really push against that decision as much as they can. Absolutely right. And then my last one is Last Flight Home, the Ondi Timoner movie where she follows the her father, who is terminally ill and decides that he's going to take his own life. And so it's a family drama, if you like. So, yeah, Andy's film premiered at Sundance as well. And to what extent have you been seeing that film on other lists or what's the buzz on that film? I've heard that it's heartbreaking. And I have to say, I haven't watched it myself because of that. I've been resisting. I'm going to have to see it. But I happen to have had some family losses in my life in the last year that made me not want to go there. But I think I will. It keeps popping up. The Doc NYC shortlist, put her on there. Yeah, I would agree with you that it is a hard watch. So in terms of accessibility, if we consider as a factor accessibility or I guess popularity, I think that there is a bar for people to overcome to want to watch the film because you know what you're going to be in for. It's uncompromising. It's raw. It's really well made, but it's hard to take. And I'm in a similar situation with you, I think, in that I've had my father go through 
end of life issues. And it's hard to want to put yourself in a position to watch Andy and her family and her father go yeah. through that. Yeah. But I, I would say I would highly recommend it. I felt much better after I did. And I really appreciated the filmmaking. Yeah, I'll make myself do it. I'll have a stiff drink and make myself do it. Um, so what are your uh, dark horses? Yes. So the dark horses, again, these are in alphabetical order. We have Bad Axe, which is a real-time portrait of the filmmaker David Sieves' family in Trump's rural America in Michigan as they fight to keep their restaurant alive during the pandemic and in the face of neo-Nazis and everything else. We also have Children of the Mist, which is Hale Diem's intimate portrait of a 12-year-old Hmong girl in a small northern Vietnamese village who has to face down the frightening prospect of bride kidnapping. Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, which you mentioned, which is directed by Dana Goldfine and Dan Geller. Hidden Letters, Violet Dufang's film, which follows two Chinese women who are connected by their commitment to protecting the ancient secret language of Nushu developed by women in China. And then we had Lost Flight Home on this list. Okay, so we're not very far apart here. And part of why I have the dark horses that I do is because I have to confess to you, these are the ones I haven't seen. Bad Axe is IFC, and that one has shown up in various lists and things. I've heard good word about Bad Axe. And Hallelujah, we talked about Hidden Letters and Children of the Mist are really under the radar movies that really a lot of people haven't heard about yet. I can't wait to see them. I'm going to catch up with them. I look forward to them. And it's quite possible that it's the international voters who put these on the list. They didn't turn up in a lot of the other awards groups. I put A House Made of Splinters on this list also, and I'll catch up with it. I know that has some profile. Yeah, that one could definitely have made it onto our Dark Horse list. And I think we switched it over to runners-up because of the international vote. Right. And also because he did have his earlier film, The Distant Barking of Dogs, I think. This is, is also well-known. Beloved true. film. Yeah. I did want to ask about this issue of films on this list that are distributed by much smaller distribution companies or even don't have distribution. What is the handicap there? So I looked up some of these movies just on the day of the shortlist announcement, and IMDb didn't have distribution for some of them. And then the distributors, who I didn't recognize as major distributors, got back in touch with me and I corrected the story. So some of the distributors are smaller, and I'm not sure House of Splinters, even though it won the World Documentary at Sundance, I'm not sure that one has a distributor. I looked it up on IMDb. I don't see anything. I don't see the record of them being in theaters or making money. These movies don't have the kind of profile or the push or the money behind them that helps. To me, what's good about this is it shows that the Doc Branch's system of putting a minimum of, say, 12 to 14 movies that people have to see. Each member has a list that they have to watch no matter what else they see. It means that these movies all got seen and some of them got voted for, even if they weren't high profile. So the next phase is going to be everybody catching up. They're going to all watch all 15 of those movies and then vote. And I think that'll be very revealing. So once that happens, do you see any sleepers emerging? I need to see these ones I haven't seen. That's the problem. What was it? Writing with Fire? Yes. That was an incredible movie. It was one of the later ones I saw. I interviewed the filmmakers. That was a sleeper for sure, you know, that people didn't see coming. And it was just a question of everybody watching the film and responding as well as they did. 
Great point. And that one was with a smaller distributor and it ended up being nominated. So it can yeah. and it does happen. I would say with the documentaries, they're branch members. They're very responsible. They look at the films. It isn't as responsive to marketing as some of the other categories are. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And I think Apple didn't have any films on this list. Netflix only had one film on this list. I don't think Showtime had any films on this list. So just being big doesn't mean you're going to make it on there. You know what? Louis Armstrong was a really fun movie, and so was Senior, and so was Sydney. But they're not the kinds of movies that the doc branch takes seriously is the bottom line. So I'm curious, taking this group as a whole, at least the ones that you've had the chance to see so far, do you see any trends this year in terms of the kinds of films, the styles, the subjects, or even the filmmakers? I would say that there's a receptivity to a certain kind of inclusion. There's no question about that. All that breathes and the territory fall into that category, along with a number of, of the smaller films like Children of the Mist and Bad Axe and Descendant, obviously. And then you have Degree of Difficulty. I would say Moon Age Daydream and Retrograde are, are Degree of Difficulty. And Retrograde and Navalny, too, are, and the Janes, all super political all super timely, movies that upset people, you know, really for good reason. And the territory, too, the environmental degradation upsets people. Fire of Love and All the Beauty and the Bloodshed are much more about the artistry of the filmmaking and the way that they took this subject and took it to another level, elevated it beyond where it could have been. I think that's a great lead-in to hearing what your predictions are for the final five nominees. However, I want to revisit last year for a second. How did I do? You did well. So last year, your picks for the final five nominees were Summer of Soul. You also predicted it as the winner, which it was. Flea, Attica, In the Same Breath, and The Rescue. So, no, I didn't do so well then. Well, three out of five. So you got... Summer of Soul, Flea, and Attica, In the Same Breath, and The Rescue did not make it. Writing with Fire, which we mentioned, did, and also Ascension. Yeah, Ascension made it. For whatever reason, I was so impressed with In the Same Breath, and I had reasons to think that other people would be too, but I think that Ascension was widely viewed and more accessible than In the Same Breath. They were very similar films. Yeah. Not One knocked the other out, basically. Yeah, and I just had the opportunity to watch Hidden Letters last night. And as I was watching it, I was struck by some of the similarities with Ascension. So it will be interesting to get your take on that film. Looking forward. All right, Anne, let's do a final recap. What are your picks for the five nominees in the category of Best Documentary Feature? They are All That Breathes, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Fire of Love, Navalny, and The Territory. Those were my favorites, and those are my predictions for the Oscar nominees. All right. And the winner is going to be? Last year, we knew that Summer of Soul was this hugely popular movie. We did. We knew that at this moment in time. And I would have ordinarily said All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, but she's won before, and you know that that's a thing. They tend not to do it. Getting nominated is going to be an achievement for that film, in a way. And I'm assuming it will be. So it does seem like this is a more competitive year than it last is. year. It is. And the territory would be my fifth slot. Any number of other things could get in there instead of the territory. But I do think that 
indigenous emotional beauty will register. I do. And again, I haven't seen some of these other ones, but if I haven't seen them, that means some of the other people haven't seen them either, but they're going to catch up with them. Everybody's going to watch these films and it will be an even playing field in the end, just for this next round. Once they get to the Academy at large, that's another matter. So does the Academy at large vote for all the beauty and the bloodshed, given the chance? No, I don't think they do. I think they vote for something like Fire of Love, but that is a polarizing movie. People love it. And other people like Miranda July is like nails on a chalkboard for them. Would that create an opening for Navalny? I think it's Navalny in that universe. Maybe it is. Yeah. Given that group of five, based on the movies I've seen and the popularity, and think about what's going on with Putin and Ukraine, and maybe it's Navalny. It's got all the different things we talked about. It's accessible. It's beautifully made. It crosses over to some kind of extraordinary, groundbreaking filmmaking in terms of the access that they got to breaking news. It's ticking a lot of boxes, Anne. Okay. You heard it here. So here we go, folks. Navalny is Anne's pick to win the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, a year from now, we will sit down. I could have egg on my face. <laughs> and be talking about either, yeah, it was Navalny all the time, or, huh, why did I think it was Navalny? <laughs> <laughs> this is not a case where there's a word of mouth hit out there that everybody's talking about. Are you hearing that kind of thing from on any of these titles? Not really. I do think for me, based on the other awards and just the buzz, there were two sort of locks for the shortlist. Fire of Love and All That Breathes seemed to be the two locks. So we talked about Fire of Love as a possible winner. I think All That Breathes could go all the way because it has the international connection. That's possible. Uh, but in know. a weird way, as much as I love it, I do. I love it. It isn't quite as accessible as Navalny. It's a movie that you observe and admire. I agree with you. So the Anne formula of accessibility, popularity, and artistry is a factor here. So maybe on balance, it's Navalny. I guess I would put it between Navalny and All That Breathes. But who knows, Anne? <laughs> and Lastly, if you have one, I know you haven't seen them all, so maybe premature, but of the ones you've seen, what's your sort of favorite, personal favorite of the year? All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, for sure. I just think that movie's amazing. That's how smart she is. It's sort of like Matt Heineman. She doesn't stop at A or B or C. She keeps going to D, E, F. You know, she just keeps going until she's got multiple layers of a story that is much deeper than she started with. Absolutely. It felt like a film that could only be made by Laura Poitras. Exactly right. On this, we agree. And we've done it again. You've done it again, taking us through this list of 15 shortlisted films. And I think we can both agree, again, a very strong list. Oh, they always do a great job. Thank you so much, Anne. And we'll catch up with you after the fact. Enjoy the rest of the holiday season and the award season. This was fun. 